This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director, Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to bring you part two of my interview with Emily Kaplan. Now, in this second part of this incredible conversation, we unpack a host more topics, from the obesity epidemic to the power of big sugar the Broken Science Initiative and the work that they're doing to educate us on what true science looks like and some of the misuse of the term science, Emily's journey with the CrossFit book, some incredible insights into exercise, menstruation, and pregnancy, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Emily Kaplan. Enjoy. Emily, we are sitting back down. I haven't done this before, but we're literally jumping right back into a part two. I think this is what, two weeks after we spoke last a week. Um, but there was so much I still wanted to ask you and rather than wait months and months and months to do a second episode, I wanted to put it all together now. Um, as a kind of icebreaker for this part, um, we were talking before we hit record about the impact of marijuana and or alcohol on women specifically. Now, I don't know if I've got a very feminine quality to myself, but when I drink... <laughs> 
I don't drink ever. I mean, genuinely hand on heart, never go out, oh, I'm going to get shit faced today. It's always been a buzz. I think it was because I was raised with wine ever since I was a little boy. It was, you know, a couple of glasses with, with dinner as I got a little bit older, but it was never the kind of hold people back like in the US till they're 21 and then let go. And now they're greyhounds, keg standing and ping beer ponging and all this other stuff that they do over here. Dying. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. So, but what I saw within myself was... I would drink a certain amount most of the time and be just fine. And every so often I would drink the same amount and get blindsided and be throwing up and be, you know, disoriented and all these things. So talk to me about what you started unpacking as far as the impact of, um, you know, whether it's marijuana, alcohol on, on a woman and how maybe the hormonal changes affect their reaction to it. Yeah. So when I had my podcast, which was looking at sex differences in medicine, specifically looking at how female bodies are really different than men's, um, one, we were really, I mean, this is such a kind of, it sounds crazy, but it's a really new area of, of medical and scientific research to consider women's bodies as different. Um, and so we kind of did this big canvassing my producer and I looking for people who were really looking at women's bodies. And we found a couple of really interesting studies looking at women and weed. And they extrapolated from that and also thought about, you know, more hardcore drugs as well as alcohol and how there is a hormonal reaction that happens. And so around, and it's, you know, it's interesting because if you think of the hormonal cycle as like when a woman is ovulating, she is, you know, able to get pregnant for that week and so people will say like, you're happier, you're more outgoing, you have more, you know, progesterone, oxytocin, like all of these great dopamine, like uh, serotonin, everything is sort of like kicking for her then. Um, and it's actually really interesting. There's all these apps that are coming out now. And I think they're, I mean, I haven't found one that I think is actually accurate based on research, but they're trying, which is cool about workouts um, and the female cycle. So you can track your period. And it'll tell you like, oh, work hard, work, or work out harder now. And interestingly, I feel like it seems like they're really saying that when you have your period, you can work out and lift more and do more, which is the opposite of sort of how you're taught as a young woman with, I mean, I played sports. So like with coaches, you could kind of get out of practice. Certainly with swimming, you could always get out of swimming. If you, you know, said you had your period, the male coach would like sort of duck and hide if you even like made reference to it. Right. So it's interesting to know that's actually the opposite, that you can make really big improvements when you have your period and you're working out really hard. Um, but, you know, so it, it shouldn't be really difficult to imagine that those hormonal shifts, which are huge, also impact, you know, food you eat right? As well as, um, you know, drugs or alcohol or things that you're consuming that, you know, impact the regulation of all of your other hormones. And so we found that um, there were researchers looking at, you know, during ovulation, women will be even more extroverted and they may be more susceptible to negative responses from alcohol. And so that kind of, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, like you're supposed to probably be having sex and getting pregnant, right? So like you're out there more, you're more lively and you're more sensitive, I would say is probably the way to, you know, sort of explain this to a broad audience. And so anything that you're taking in is going to have a stronger reaction. And I wish, you know, what we were saying before is I really wish that younger women were taught this kind of stuff. And I know the research isn't sound enough that we can like really make these conclusions. But even just for themselves to sort of track 
okay, when I have my, you know, right before I have my period, these are, this is how I'm feeling. I'm tired. I'm grumpy. What, you know, sort of normal, what we talk about is like PMS, but then also things like, well, what about afterwards? Or what about like, do you know when you're ovulating, right? Like these are really important things for women to know for a number of reasons, but in part, like sugar affects you differently, right? You're more glucose sensitive when you have your period, which is probably why women crave sweets more. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting stuff around female cycles and the sort of exogenous um, response to them and how these outside, you know, stimulants or uppers and downers and whatever impact them more during these fluctuations. And I, you know, honestly, I wouldn't be at all surprised if men have this too, but no one's thinking about it the same way because you guys don't get your periods. But that's not to say that there aren't hormonal shifts in men. And certainly as you age, there are. Um, that would also impact these things, right? I mean, people will talk about how, you know, older men are more sensitive, they'll cry more easily. Well, that's all hormonal. It's not really life experience. <laughs> I mean, it may be you become more aware of sentimentality and other things like that, but I'm sure it's a hormonal shift also. So the the leap to saying that this would impact men in some way too, I think is obvious. Um, but for women, it's very clear because it's a 30 day tracking, right? Or 28 days, you can kind of figure out where you are. And over a year, you have 12 samples to look at. You can start to see patterns. So I think that's interesting because I think that's an area that is sort of obvious in a way once you know it, Um, but it's really not something that's talked about, especially with younger women. And I was saying to you before, if you hear about, you know, young women having some sort of terrible thing where they're passing out or they're throwing up or, you know, they can't understand why they got so intoxicated it's likely related to that i mean if they say they drank the same amount as they did the friday before and they have a wildly different reaction well it's, there's got to be a cause and that's kind of interesting no it is i think i mean obviously there's lots of other factors as well you know what did we eat before were we well slept yeah. i mean which i think on the Hydration. male side is going to be more of an impact i bet if i look you know back it was like okay i, I hadn't had any any food i was going to eat after i started drinking which i know you know hands down is one of the worst things you can do um, with the, the periods, though, it's interesting if you're saying that physiologically that's a good time. And I wonder what like the HRV and some of those things are like then, too. But I, I forget mm-hmm. who it was, but someone I heard, it was either a guest or I listened somewhere else, was talking about um, have we traditionally always had this kind of you know extreme pain and cramping in periods? Or is there something about the modern lifestyle that's exasperating these symptoms? Because if you think about evolution how would that have really served women you know that had to be out there and you know surviving every day to be absolutely crushed by menstruation every you know every month for their you know entire adult life and i think if there's a condition called endometriosis which is causes incredibly painful periods and younger you know, girls are often told to like, oh, well, like, welcome to being a woman and like, just get used to it. And that's not, I actually think it's fascinating to think about the idea that period pain is the only time that doctors tell patients this pain is normal, you know, childbirth, right? But that's an isolated impact event. This is a regularly occurring pain, but never do we have that in any other scenario where pain is considered normal and you're supposed to just get through it. Pain's an indicator. Um, and with endometriosis, there's a, that was another, we did a, at least one, maybe a couple of episodes on, um, endometriosis, because it's one of these things that, you know, I'm a big believer in root causes and 
if you don't know what the root cause is, you actually, in that case, you haven't even defined it. So some people, some women have their lungs collapse because this endometrial tissue has basically from the uterus has fat, like sort of found its way up. So to the lungs and it becomes, um, you know, it's sort of reacting. So it's cramping as if it's in the uterus, but it's outside the uterus. So endometriosis is often defined as endometrial um, tissue found outside of the uterus. And it, that's, again, it's like, well, wait, is that, are you born that way? Does that happen? Like, I, I remember people saying, um, in medical research, it's like a back flush of your period, right? Like that's, what is, what are you saying? That sounds disgusting. <laughs> and like, I don't like, does that mean it, the blood doesn't come out? No, that's not what it means. And and so there is this still raging debate within that community as to whether this is a sort of chronic illness that you develop over time, or it's something that you're born with. Well, these are really important distinctions to understand. And you know, again, people go through crazy surgeries to try to remove this tissue that's, you know, outside of the area where it's expected to be found. Um, and sometimes those are successful and sometimes they're not. And I know when we were looking into this, it's the same with um, polycystic ovaries, which cause huge fertility issues that very oftentimes people are put on like soy diets, which is crazy because soy has tons of estrogen. And actually a lot of products that women use have estrogen. So most deodorants have a high estrogen that they're at, you know, that's sort of like added into the deodorant. Those are all going to make this condition much worse. And, and the idea, and, you know, and I am a big believer that like women need to be eating red meat because the iron is so important when you're menstruating and you're losing all that blood. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think this is, it's an area that has been passed over because people haven't been. Um, and I, I don't understand this. I can't say that they haven't been interested in women's bodies, but the excuse was always sort of like, oh, there's too complicated because of all of these variables. And I find that strange because like really good scientists and, and smart doctors like complex problems. It's not like we've shied away from other things that are complex. So I do think, you know, this is a classic example of like the more women that get into medicine, the more they can demand money for research and the more they're interested in these things that maybe personally impacted them in some way and was glossed over. But there are, it, it, I think endometriosis is one of these things. It's hard to know whether it's being diagnosed at a greater frequency or the actual occurrence rate is greater, but it does seem like there, it, it's certainly more talked about and it's certainly impacting more women that I hear about in terms of moms and friends with, with, you know, children or daughters, then um, I remember it being when I was a kid. So, and that's all anecdotal, but, you know, I think these things are interesting. I think as, you know, people become more interested in women's bodies or in science and medicine and all of these things, and the internet becomes available and groups form online of talking about symptoms, it does bring to light these things in ways that becomes very hard to actually measure if it's a a bigger problem than it ever was before, or women were, you know, certainly told 20 years ago to just sort of suffer through it in silence. And when it became a fertility issue, that's when it was treated. It wasn't really treated before that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I can't accurately say if it's a greater occurrence, although it does seem to be pretty prevalent. Um, and I think, you know, there's a difference, like you have cramps and I mean, I don't have polycystic 
ovaries and I don't have endometriosis. So I want to be careful about being sensitive to people who do. But I think there's a clear distinction between people who have regular cramps, right? Which often you have when you're ovulating too. And you kind of know something's going on in your body, but you can function. You can do everything you need to do versus really being debilitated with pain and not being able to get out of bed, not being able to go to school. Um, I know that for one of those episodes, we talked to some people who had missed weeks of school and were, you know, way behind because they like literally couldn't do anything about it. And, you know, the other thing that I remember was really frequent and I hope it's less so, but I don't know that it is, is um, girls getting put on the pill in order to regulate their periods and help with these kinds of things. And long-term pill use has been shown to cause all kinds of problems, including brain tumors. And I, I don't, think that that's the end all be all remedy for these things. I do think, you know, if you look at polycystic ovaries, it's certainly a low carb diet helps a lot. Obesity is a massive factor um, in looking at who suffers from polycystic ovary problems. Um, And I would imagine endometriosis does is also, I mean, I think when you're obese and your body is unable to regulate your endocrine system properly, things start breaking down. And so it's not a leap to say, well, of course, your hormonal cycle is going to be off as well. And your body's going to start having these, you know, painful episodes because it's not able to regulate really any of its basic functioning. Um, so I was actually, I had an interesting conversation on Instagram with somebody who was getting a lot of crap for having a very, very low body fat. Um, and people were saying she has three kids and people were saying to her, you know, this isn't healthy. You shouldn't be recommending this to people. And so she said to me, like, I've always thought that this was the difference was between women who are starving themselves and women like me who work out and eat a lot. And so I said, you know, let me look into that. Cause I think it's really interesting. And I think this is another one of these areas where people make this generalized kind of statement about something. But when you dial down on it, all those studies about being like below 10% body fat and then you stop getting your period and how dangerous that is, I think those are all based on anorexic girls. So you're starving yourself. Your body stops getting your period because you wouldn't be able to care for a baby. I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to carry the baby to term. And certainly if you don't have access to enough food, which is what your body thinks, your body think, doesn't think you're intentionally doing starving yourself, how are you going to provide for the baby? So there's a survival mechanism that kicks in, stops your period. Well, if you're eating a ton and you're working out a lot and you're just lean, not light necessarily, right? Like not low in pounds, but uh, low body fat, you're kind of ideal for having a baby. Your body is healthy. It's robust. It's strong. You'll be able to carry through. So well, I think when, you know, a lot of the women in the CrossFit space who say like, well, I still get my period and I have 5% body fat or something crazy, right? Well, they're not lying, it's that they're healthy and it's a very different thing than what all those studies were looking at, which was really looking at anorexic women who were truly starving and their organs were on the verge of shutting down. I mean, all their organs, we don't, the CrossFit women aren't, their organs aren't in failure, right? It's a very, very different thing. But when you focus on one metric, um, you know, those two cohorts become conflated. And I think, you know, the, I know it's a little tangential, but like the way that my brain is thinking about this now is that it's sort of the same. It's like, if you look at something like, um, you know, polycystic ovaries or endometriosis, we can make all these claims about, well, the surgery didn't work or the pill doesn't work, but really it probably does come back to some, you know, hormones in the food, 
um, not eating the right kinds of food, you know, having a spiked insulin on a regular basis in a way that your body is sort of in shock all the time, not being able to access your fat stores. I would imagine all of that is really, that's the, that's the, that's the root cause. And that's the sort of population that is, you know, lumped in with um, other groups where, you know, they're not suffering from that. And yet it's, we're not able to make this sort of demarcation between the two. Well, I mean, we've just seen Annie Thor's daughter. I think she's got two children now, if I'm not mistaken. I think Tia Claire at the moment is heavily pregnant. Um, yeah. So, and I've seen it in my own CrossFit gym. I mean, these women are incredibly lean. They have a healthy pregnancy, and then they have an amazing return. Not, you know, they're not throwing around hundred pound kettlebells like the day after they they gave birth, but they're ramping back up, and their return to their normal body weight is incredible to watch. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of the guests, um, a lot of the research I I was exposed to when I was in sports science. Um, and I've had this kind of um, confirmed by a couple of the guests that came on that were high, high level gymnasts is that's another group where the periods are delayed when you work in those children to the level that you are. And again, there's, there's, there's a push to be light. So I'm sure there's probably an element of anorexia subconsciously built in there. That's a group of people. If you, if you, you know, work some of these children to the, the level that you're asking them to and you're you're holding these body weight expectations at the same time that is another group that i've seen seems to have that issue with periods and and and, um delayed puberty i think that's right yeah and you see the inverse too right you see girls getting their periods really young now um and people attribute that to obesity so there there's got to be that spectrum connection to diet and exercise i mean i think of gymnasts as being very strict about their diets. I interviewed um, Shannon Miller, who is amazing. Um, and she was, you know, the first American to get the gold and beat Russia and all this great stuff on the team. And she was saying to me that she, um, you know, she went to school. She ate what her mom gave her. <laughs> like she was not any, she had to beg to go do gymnastics more than twice a week because her parents thought it was too much. Um And so, you know, I mean, I think there's a change there too. I think these kids who are being expected to perform like professional grown-up athletes and dedicate everything to it are under a high level of stress. And I think stress also contributes to, um, you know, the sort of sex reproductive hormone cycles things also. Absolutely. I've had a lot of conversations on here with people that were either high-level athletes themselves as children and or the coaches and with English eyes coming to the States, there is this you know, very, very obvious element of high level of performance in school and college, but at the detriment of longevity and wellness. And a lot of these, you know, Uncle Rico stories, as I call them, you know, I could have been if it wasn't for my shoulder, my knee, my back, whatever. And it's like, well, how sad is that, that you barely turned 18 and you're already broken? I mean, that's that's a conversation that we need to be having. Performance is amazing, but it should not be at the cost of of a child's longevity and performance as they progress. And I think, sadly, that's one of the reasons we see obesity in a lot of our adults. They used to be athlete Mm -hmm. A, and now they're morbidly obese person B, the absolute end of the opposite end of the spectrum because they you know they they were burned out mentally they were broken physically and there isn't this kind of carry through to sports are fun you should just play them it's if you're not first you're last and it's, it's such a shitty way of looking at movement in general yeah i agree with that completely i think that the power of play like as somebody who really is very 
tries to be playful all the time because I think it's the best way to get through hard things. It's crazy that these kids are in these structured activities expecting to perform like little robots when I really, I, there's a, there's a great documentary that's called, um, I want to say it's called like the greatest one. It's got basically like every major athlete at the you know pinnacle or having been at the pinnacle of their sport. Um, and they go around and they talk to, you know, Wayne Gretzky and they say, how did you get, you know, how did you get to be the greatest? And he talks about being a kid and watching hockey and he would just draw circles. Like he'd follow the puck on the ice and he'd draw circles. And he realized there are these magic spots where people aren't. And he knew he wasn't the best player, but he had this ability to see where the puck was on the ice because he'd watched so many times. But his parents made him play a bunch of different sports. And the takeaway from that is really this, you know, it's sort of that range idea, right? That you, you know, are exposed to lots of different things and it helps you be better at some things. And I mean, I might personally... I grew up, um, you know, in an area outside of Boston where a lot of people play pond hockey, but boys play pond hockey. And I had figure skates and I would go play pond hockey with all the boys and I loved it. And it was play. I mean, like we I, sometimes there were rules and sometimes there really weren't. <laughs> sometimes there were teams and sometimes there weren't. You know what I mean? It was so free form. Um, and I think it's fascinating to think about how, you know, and I have to be careful. I don't know who listens to this necessarily. I don't want to get any of my friends mad at me. But I have friends who's, you know, they spend their entire summer in hotels every weekend and they're traveling around the country and spending tons of money going to baseball and gymnastics competitions where you sort of like, don't don't you want your kid to be bored in the summer and like playing outside? It's mind blowing to me. But I think once you get into these tracks, the pressure on the parents is really hardcore also to, you know, oh, little Johnny's like really loves baseball. You better sign him up for the clinic and make sure he gets on the club level and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, you're kind of in this funnel and the kids wrap their whole identity around it, you know? And I, I think it's really sad when you meet somebody and I actually know people like this. I mean, I shouldn't, it's not sad, but it's like, you know, when you have a group of friends and they sit around and they have a couple of drinks and all they do is like talk about their high school football game and like how amazing it was, right? Like, well, that's great. It's good to have those memories, but like that shouldn't be the greatest. You can't peak at that point, right? And um, and I think we're doing that to these kids. I mean, you hear about these kids getting Tommy John surgery in high school and it's like, we, I mean, it used to be professional baseball players. It would be a, like a big deal if somebody had that done. Now it's like not that uncommon for kids in high school to get it. That's bizarre. And knee replacements. And I mean, all this stuff where you sort of think, to your point, long-term, what is this doing to the health of the individual to, you know, overwork their joints to the point where they can't function? I I don't really get that. But I also think maybe I'm just a lazy mom who doesn't want to drive (laughs) all the practices. Well, even, I mean, I've said this as well, like the, the, the idea, again, I've got a different perspective. I come from a different country. I wasn't indoctrinated in the quote-unquote American way. So to me, little Johnny is born in Florida or little Jessica, and they excel in baseball. And then they're like, okay, we're going to go do travel ball, and we're going to go all the way up the you know the eastern seaboard. And I'm like, wait, time out. You're telling me that there aren't teams in Central Florida alone or South Florida that wouldn't whoop your ass 10 times over. You need to totally. travel to Georgia. Yes. But, and I asked these coaches, and like, no, it's a money-making scheme. It's not yeah, about I, bringing it, the best out of these kids. And it's cost prohibitive. 
I mean, it's elitist, right? What you're doing is you're forming like a country club around a sport for kids. So like if you can afford for the plane ride, if you can afford for the, you know, travel special uniform, different every week bullshit, then you get to participate. That's, I don't like any part of that. I mean, sports are supposed to be a meritocracy. They're probably the last meritocracy, really. And if you start making everything about who can afford to participate and who can't, you're greatly limiting not just the talent pool, but also the experience and who the kids are exposed to. I mean, I think I was exposed, I was a very privileged child and I was exposed to all kinds of people playing sports that I probably never would have been exposed to in my normal day-to-day life and became great friends. So I don't like any part of that. It's not, I, I just, I think it's, it's the opposite of what sports are supposed to be. And it's limiting on the body. It's limiting on the social experience. It's limiting on the, you know, and I mean, sports are creative and you take that creativity away when you like sort of require so much structure and attention. You think about things when you're away from them, right? Things you really love. You think about when you're not doing them, when you're sleeping, you're, you know, they think you're practicing all of these skills and reworking things. I think of often with clients, I'll say, um, you know, there'll be some legal strategy we have to work out or something. And I'll say, you know, I need, let me sleep on it. And I think they think I just need space, but I'm actually sleeping on it (laughs) because in my dreams, I actually do a lot of problem solving and I'll wake up in the morning and have an idea of what I think we should do or what the different outcomes look like. And I think sports are like that too. And so if you're just doing it all the time and you kind of hate it and you resent it because you don't ever get to go to the movies or lie in the backyard and look at clouds or whatever, read a book, right? Um, everything is like, you do one thing, you're not doing something else. So I I think that that's sort of sad for kids. I mean, I think all the structured stuff is going to take away from our sort of innovative spirit in this country. Greg and I joke a lot because we both like Legos and our kids are both obsessed with Legos. And he was saying to me, I was saying how funny it is that I don't remember as a kid and my parents have a house in Maine that we still go to in the summer And there's a lot of old toys and stuff up there, which is sort of fun for my kids to play with my old toys. And there's like Playmobiles and Legos and they're just colored blocks. And so my kids will be like, what set is this from? You know, and I'm like, well, I think we had the Millennium Falcon and it was like the the original Millennium Falcon, right? And, but I, you know, we don't have those anymore. Those, you know, it's all in bits. But when you look at the blocks, they're primary colors. And I was saying something to Greg and he was like, yeah, because it used to be you'd make a house or you'd make a car or you'd figure out how to, you know, use these generic looking pieces and build something innovative. Now, this is Greg, not me. I can't take credit for this because it's too brilliant. He was like, now what they're doing is they're basically creating um, children who will be really good at assembling iPhones. And it's true, yep. right? It's like, okay, step one, put this piece in this piece. Step two, put these pieces together. And I think, I mean, I love when my kids do Legos because I think it's teaching them independent play. And I think it's teaching them to follow directions, which are all things that are challenging for them. But, and I think it's cool to see what you start, start with a bag of bricks and you end up with this really cool, you know, Marvel helicopter or whatever. But um, I think Greg's point is right. That it used to be that we would just sort of use our imaginations and create cool things. And now we're just following what we're told to do. So it's interesting because I've seen that. My son, still he's 15, still loves Lego. And for a bit, he was kind of almost embarrassed. My uh, my bonus boy, my stepson, moved out. He's 21 now. So his old bedroom is now this room full of Lego. 
And for a bit, he was, um, you know, a little bit self-conscious about it. And I said, look, can you draw? Are you a good artist? He's like, no, no. I said, do you play an instrument? He's like, well, not really. I've learned to play piano. I said, this is your expression of your art. It really is. And, and it's funny because I just learned um, that through a friend of mine who works with Orlando Bloom, that that's his decompression between, you know, sets or, excuse me, between... Um, you know, shoots or whatever it is that, that he's doing, he permeates it with, with building, which is amazing. I think so many people actually do behind closed doors. Like maybe it's mm -hmm. the new homosexuality, Lego building. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but he will build the thing from the manual and then he says until it breaks. So I don't know if he's, you know, moving things around and it kind of collapses a little bit, but then he disassembles it and his room is this entire, you know, city now, but it's all old sets that have been reimagined to use that nauseating disney word um but it, it's that creativity and i've seen that with the sports you can't do this these are the rules these are the parameters one of the most beautiful things is when you watch a bunch of kids and they'll start with you know especially in england they'll throw down four sweatshirts you know make two goals but then maybe you'll say no it's all right you can you can use your hands if it's in the air you can punch it down or you know and then you start changing rules and you're creative within that world of play and this is i think the problem with with these sports of course if you're going to have a game in a league there have to be rules that make sense but you should also be able to explore around maybe come up with i mean all these games were created from exploration and play you know and mm -hmm. now we've got locked down you know this steel box no this is football you can't do anything else so i think that's the other element that you see in norway and some other places where there's the creativity element rather than like you said it has to go a b c d e yep and, you know, when I said I was joking with my son about um, why don't you why don't you build something that's not in the instructions? And he was like, no, mom, this is really relaxing. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. This isn't a process for him the way that I assumed it was. This is something else. It's an, like it's a Zen thing of just going through this and building it and being hyper focused. Right. And, and I appreciate that. I think that's great. You know, everybody needs things like that sort of the way you described Orlando Bloom doing the Legos that just allows you to decompress and, you know, be within your own thoughts and have something to focus on and have like a Lego flow. <laughs> exactly. But even the Lego movie that they made, they touched on this very thing. You know, the craggle was this, this mm -hmm. father that glued all his Lego together. And the whole point was you don't need to be a slave to the instructions in the very things that we sell. So it was kind of interesting seeing that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's true. All right. Well, then we've just talked about a bunch of stuff and it's already 30 minutes in. So let's get to <laughs> root causes and sugar. So one of the and then for people listening, there might be some kind of crossovers in our conversation. We can't remember every single thing that we talked about in the first part, but I don't think we really delved into this very deeply. One of the most heartbreaking things, and I just posted two videos today, two different ones with um elderly people with dementia which i would assume is alzheimer's and more recently i've heard alzheimer's being termed as type 3 diabetes i as a paramedic obviously have seen that element i've seen you know so many people with type 2 diabetes uh, one lady i was in on training paramedic training at hospital and she was just walking out we helped her to the car and and before we got to the car her leg snapped off or her foot like snapped off like a piece of jerky type 2 diabetes you know it was just, it's so horrendous to see in person you know behind the curtain the real health element of you know type 2 diabetes and, and all the things that are associated with it so talk to me about um yeah maybe we can start with greg like how did he start honing in on that and then i'd love to kind of unpack 
the the research and maybe the the um, opposition to the real world understanding of some of the the detriment of that industry. I think there's so many different ways to start talking about this. I mean, I think you know Greg has a really great. Um, story where he explains that he called Adkins. Have you ever heard this? No. He got he got him on the phone. I mean, I think he you know this was back in the day where you could call four one one or he got his hands on a phone book for New York or something. And he was and I think maybe he spoke to his wife and then passed the message along and he was able to talk to him. And I think he has said to me that he learned a lot of what he knows about the importance of you know the impact of carbs and sugar on bodies from um, bodybuilders that the bodybuilding community forever has known. If you want to slim down, you get rid of the carbs and the sugar. I mean, carbs are sugar. So when I say carbs, I mean, sugar, I think that we have to sort of reiterate that over and over for people because um, I don't think that, and even on the Instagram accounts that I have, that people are constantly writing like, why do you hate carbs? (laughs) It depends on what you're trying to do, but for all like, you know, unless you're a really like finely tuned athlete working out all day long, they don't really serve much of a purpose for you. They're an instant source of fuel, but otherwise, you know, they're going to lead to the accumulation of fat and your inability to access that fat. So I think that's really important for people to know. And I think, um, so I think as Greg was sort of developing his training protocols, you know, he he has always had nutrition at the bottom of that pyramid because he knew that was the most impactful thing. Changing one's diet and getting rid of the, the you know, sort of nefarious parts of their diet would have a far greater impact than any exercise they would do. Now, I think when you add in the exercise component, you're adding muscle and we know that lean body mass is incredibly important for health and longevity. Um, but I also think, you know, the more muscle you have, the more you can eat, right? There's a lot of these things where I think, um, you know, he knew very early on from working in that environment with a lot of bodybuilders around, and he's a naturally really curious, smart guy, right? So it was intuitive for him to sort of say, like, what are you all doing? And then, you know, try to do it with clients and get the same results and realize, oh, this is a huge competitive advantage because look at how great my clients look versus everybody who's eating this low fat, you know, high carb diet. I think the other thing to touch on is, you know, and this is a story that has been told many times, but not in a complete way in terms of documentaries that have been done and stuff like that. I think Gary Taubes has done the very best on this with Good Calories, Bad Calories, the book he did. Um years ago. And then he did the case against sugar, which was really like sort of a condensed version of good calories, bad calories to try to reach a wider audience, but a lot of the same material, but the, you know, the dietary food guidelines that came out in the seventies were done as a part of this McGovern commission. And they were really done because there were people in the United States who were starving. There was a huge starvation problem. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the farm bill was also becoming a really important part of the ag department. And we had these crops that we were going to be subsidizing, corn, soy, right, potatoes, that if we could produce in abundance, we could feed this, you know, malnutrition sort of starvation problem that we had in the United States. And so there was this at that point, I'm unwilling to say that this was all corrupted. I think that, at, and people would probably argue with me about that, but I, I actually think they were trying to solve a problem in the country and they didn't know enough. There wasn't really enough 
nutrition science. There really, I mean, there were no nutrition science departments and this was being done out of the agriculture department, right? It wasn't health and human services or what we would think of now as like, you know, the healthy, the CDC, any of those kinds of agencies. And when those um, guidelines came out and Mark Hegstead, who I think I mentioned last time we talked, I interviewed in a nursing home. I was the last person to interview him alive. And he admitted that they made big mistakes. He says at the press conference for the dietary guidelines, we have not, we have been rushed to produce this. We have no scientific research to back this up. Our hope is the science will follow and these guidelines will be corrected, right? And updated as we learn new information. Now they never were. And I think that, and I've, you know, again, had taken a lot of criticism from people online who will say, you know, the government doesn't tell me what to eat. And it's like, well, yeah, shut up. Yes, they do. Because if you are in the hospital, in the ICU, if you're in a public school, if you're in any publicly funded place, you are being served the dietary guidelines. That's the proportions of macros that you will get. So it has a huge impact on people. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I think the idea of taking fat out of the diet and really what we did was we took fat out and we replaced it with sugar. And there's just no getting around the impact that that has had on our health. I, when I was in grad school um, in Chicago, I, we had a quarter where we were supposed to develop our own beat. And then you had to go into the city and sort of report on it. And um, I wanted to do an adolescent health beat. And there was a school in Chicago in a pretty rough neighborhood that had a pilot program where they had a doctor and a couple of nurses at school. And the, you know, the goal was that if it was successful, they would spread it around the city. And the reason for it was that a lot of these kids, you know, live in homeless shelters or their parents are, you know, working hourly paid jobs where they certainly can't take a day off because a kid is sick. And so they realized if they could have a medical staff at school, they could deal with sick kids, would have a safe place to go during the day if they were sick. And they'd get care that they weren't going to get otherwise. Um, And I had wrongly assumed that pregnancy was going to be a big deal because, you know, these are sort of lower income places. The kids are not, you know, controlled the same way, right? There's access to a lot of stuff. That was my own elitist bias in a lot of ways. But um, I was interested to hear how the school doctor and nurses were talking about birth control and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And when I got there, the nurse was sort of sweet and was like, oh, I know you're interested in that. And that is actually a real problem. And it's something that we have to deal with all the time. But what I'm going to tell you is that our real problem is that I have, and I can't remember the exact number, but it was more than 20 eighth graders who are getting their knees, need their knees replaced. And I was like, their knees replaced. Why? And she was like, because they're so heavy, but they have worn out their knees. And I was like, why are they so heavy? Like I could, I just could not understand this. And she said to me, go to the cafeteria and see what they're eating. And this is often the only place that they get access to food. And it was, you know, she was right. It was like French fries, like all this fried food. She said, on your way out of here, stop at like the, you know, kind of like a bodega, like a corner store. She said, you can get a ba- like a box of mac and cheese and feed five kids on that one box for a couple bucks. She's like, you won't find a single source of protein in those stores. It's too expensive. And a lot of people don't have the ability to cook. So 
They're, these children are so obese and so sick that they more closely resemble somebody who's in their 70s than somebody who's, you know, not even 10 yet. And I remember like being, I could cry right now just thinking about it. Like it broke my heart to think about all these children that are already dealt like the worst cards you can imagine, right? In terms of future hope and prosperity and all these things. And that like their bodies were quitting on them before they had a chance to do anything. I mean, it's devastating. And that I feel like is part of the reason that the dietary guidelines for me still are such a sticking point. Because you look at people who are in disadvantaged communities and they are reliant on government food and the government food is shit and it's making them sick. And in some ways, I feel like that's sort of like a prison. It's really holding them captive and preventing them from going on and creating a better lives for themselves. I mean, along with all kinds of other things, we could talk about education being one. But I think the idea that, you know, children are getting one meal a day and the meal is, you know, just absolutely like crap. I mean, no vitamins, no nutrients, no protein, very little fat. If it's fat, it's like seed oil, you know, fried shit. Uh, um, sorry, it makes still makes me crazy. Well, just to interject for a second, and it should, and that's the thing. I mean, we talked about overworking a child as an athlete. Well, now that here we are on the other side of the spectrum, and it's to me, it's it's child abuse. But you know, when you we, I think we talked about this just briefly in the last conversation, but, oh, the government's not going to tell me how to eat. I remember, you know, I said, well, yeah, but you're a product of your environment. The product, the government is indirectly telling you what to eat by what is subsidized, what's not subsidized, you know, what's in your community. You can only get what you can get. And, you know, what I see coming from the first responder profession is the moment someone makes an epic mistake in uniform, and if it's a true mistake, and you know, then they should be held accountable and that should absolutely be punished the way you know any other person would uniform or not but where is the conversation of these minorities dying in genocidal numbers from obesity gang violence is another one but let's just take out any violence at all simply you know the the ill health of so many of these poorer communities and i think that should be front news yes when someone abuses their their power in uniform put that up there as well but if that's your only narrative on for example the black community and that's the only time that, that you know some shitbag narcissistic black politician is going to come up and stand side by side is when that happens but you're not there when these children are dying you know getting sick and these very, very young adults are dying in droves from the way that they're, you know, they're eating and the lack of opportunities. You're, you're nowhere to be seen then, you know. So this is what nauseates me is two wrongs don't make a right. Of course, it doesn't mean don't, you know, ignore everything that every police officer has done ever, you know, which is 95% great and, you know, 5% shitbag. But if you're going to advocate for health, the same as in COVID, if you're going to advocate for health, where the fuck is the underlying health conversation? Yeah, I think part of the reason that the Move More campaign was so disturbing was because you had Michelle Obama up there talking about how, you know, we all need to move more. And that was funded by Soda, right, very directly to make sure that people, the you know, this notion of sort of being lazy and that that's on you, but not talking at all about, you know, the harm that food causes. Um, that felt very deliberate to me and misleading, I mean, fraudulently misleading young, um, you know, minority groups 
into thinking that they could just move more (laughs) and everything would be better. And I mean, I think, you know, we kind of got to go back to these root causes again, because I think this notion that, you know, people who are morbidly obese can skip a meal, which I think we talked a little bit about before too, um, is so harmful. And you, when I think about those kids in this, you know, South side of Chicago, horrible neighborhood, eating this crap, you also have to think how hungry they are. Yeah. Overfed and, and malnourished. And they're go they're going in and gorging themselves on this terrible food. And it's that food is making them more hungry and more fat and they can't access their fat stores. Like it's just such a personal hell that I think anybody who contributes to that narrative should be culpable in this whole thing. And I mean, I think you were talking about Alzheimer's and I think Alzheimer's is a really interesting to me. I think the notion that it's um, type three diabetes is really interesting. I think there has to be a link to the sort of deterioration of the mitochondria and the cell, which has to do, you know, certainly we know insulin plays a role or glucose, you know, feeds into all of those cycles. Same with cancer, I think probably with all chronic illness, but um, you know, two thirds of Alzheimer's patients are women. And women were always told, oh, you you just live longer. And it's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because women aren't getting Alzheimer's when they've outlived the average eight, like life expectancy of a male. They're getting it post-menopausal you know, or around menopause, dementia can even start. And so what is it? Well, I'm sure it has to do with the you know, uptake of like, you know, probably the long-term impacts of eating too much carbohydrate and sugar. And I think it also has to do with um, the hormonal cycle affecting women differently and how that, I mean, I don't remember if we talked about this before or not, but there was this incredible thing that we um, have featured on the Broken Science site. And I talked a little bit about it, our big event, but all the Alzheimer's, you know, amabetaloid, that all that stuff that's like basically looking at plaque in the brain as, you know, the definition of the start of dementia has been completely debunked. And in Science Magazine last summer, I think it was July, it might've been August, um, they had this big review looking at that foundational bedrock study. And they found that the images had all been photoshopped. I mean, this isn't like- Really? Photoshopped. So these image experts online looked at it and they were like, wait, what? That's not really there. That's completely fabricated. And everything that we have done on that work since has relied on that data as being true. So with all of these things, the notion that science has progressed to any level that we have been attributing it to, I just don't, I don't buy it. Whereas I think there is some, some reason I put a lot of stock into this. Everybody can decide how much they want to, um, in looking at, you know, ancestral populations or populations over long periods of time in lots of different areas and finding trends. And so carbohydrate intake is a very new phenomenon, right? And the history of mankind. We didn't have these diseases, certainly not in the, you know, incidence rates we have them in now, even a hundred years ago. So I don't trust the medical research and I don't trust the peer review process because of how much I know about how this garbage is manufactured. But I do trust patterns throughout time and in various societies. And I think this, you know, when people say, 
oh, you have to eat for your body type or, oh, everybody's different. Like, really? Are squirrels different? Are bears different? Like, are they all eating, you know, some bears need to be vegan and some bears are carnivores and some bears, you know, are allergic to peanuts. Like, no, this, this is a human only species problem. No, like other animals don't have this. So like, that's bullshit. Now, I believe that it could be that you damage your metabolism over time. And you are, when we know this, that you become unable to handle foods that you could. So when people talk about kids and they're like, oh, you know, my little girl can eat whatever she wants and she won't get fat. It's like, well, she, she isn't getting fat, but she is destroying her system and she will get fat. I mean, people talk about, you know, Italians and how, um, you know, skinny Italian women are, and they just eat pasta. I went to high school for a year in Italy and I feel like, yeah, that's true. And a lot of them are bulimic. I mean, I'm not going to say all of them, but a lot of the girls I went to high school with were bulimic and their grandmothers are huge, Right. So yeah, the girls are young and they're healthy and they're fine, but they are doing damage to their system that over time will catch up with them. And like, that's okay. And you know, a big fat grandma who's Italian making you pasta, insisting you eat everything on your plate, like it's kind of amazing. I'm not against that. But I think if we're really talking strictly about health or you're talking about doing the least harm to your body over time to increase your health span, carbs and sugar are so low hanging fruit. When you go to, I think it's Ripley's in um, probably probably a similar one in all over the country, but there is this one gentleman who in, the, I think it was the beginning of the 1900s, was the world's fattest man. And it literally looks like quarter of Walmart. And again, I'm not saying this to be mean or you know nasty. It's just simply, it is what it is. I mean, I responded on these patients my whole career. So let's not you know dress it up either. And so when you look back, there's so much value in, like you said, just go back 100 years. How do we eat? How do we move? How much time do we spend in daylight? You know, what was there um, electrical artificial light stimulation? And you can reverse engineer and undo so much of the damage without the research and pills and potions and surgeries. And, but, they, but as you know, I talk about a lot, there's no money in that. There's no money in saying, oh, I'm just going to go to my local farm, my local farmer's market and buy a real produce that hasn't been sprayed in chemicals. And that's another thing. Like, where's the conversation that the dude spraying chemicals is wearing a hazmat suit that then becomes your <laughs> baby's food? I mean, it's it's insane. But we just, oh, I'm not going to think about that. So this is it. There wasn't the level of cancers. You know, and again, you can then go, okay, well, were they, in, were they using paint, uh, lead in their paint? Were there things that were contributing that weren't healthy back then? Of course. But the average person living in the countryside doing a somewhat healthy profession, they were not not so much even the lifespan, but their their quality of life was good up until the end, you know? And that's yeah, and what's so people hard. People were dying in things like accidents, right? I mean, like, there's a lot of ways to take these figures and really boil down to like, well, what were people dying? Of? You know, women were dying in childbirth. And like, we have a huge maternal mortality problem now. But I actually think that it's it's better in terms of the number of women who are dying. I don't think women should be dying at the rate that they're dying in. And I think most of those deaths are preventable. Um, and I've written a lot about that as a crisis. So I'm not trying to minimize that. It's we'll talk about that a second, because one of my other guests, I think it was um, Leia Barto, was talking about that, too. That's something I think most people are completely oblivious. We assume 2023 is the pinnacle of medicine and everyone is absolutely fine. 
one of my best friends almost lost his wife. Um, she almost bled to death two days after giving birth. So what are yeah. we seeing in, in the modern day world with that particular issue? So I wrote a, um, I've written a bunch of stories on this. I first wrote about it for Cosmo magazine because I felt like that's a young audience of women who can actually sort of look at this and do something about it. There is a researcher who was at Atul Gawande's lab and Atul and I were friendly and he let me come and just hang out in his lab and interview all of his researchers. And I don't know if you're if you're aware of his work, but he's a um, surgeon and he's written for The New Yorker for a long time. Um, and he was he's an amazing thinker. And um, and there was a guy in his lab named Neil Shaw, who I ended up becoming friends with. And he was doing this huge investigation into C-sections. And the reason for it was because he had been, uh, he's a Harvard professor and an OB. And in Boston, there's a bunch of different Harvard teaching hospitals. So you work in different hospitals. And he realized that his C-section rate in one hospital was wildly different than it was in another one. And they're both top tier, great. You know, the facilities are all top of the line there. He couldn't, and he's a problem solver. So he was trying to sort of reverse engineer, like what is going on in this one hospital that's causing the C-section rate to be so much higher? The populations are very similar. There's all these really cool things that you can compare and cross off because they're the same. And he realized there was something about the hospital. And so he sort of pitched the idea to a tool and a tool gave him lab space and all the stuff to really dive into it. And interestingly, most women don't know this. You can look up your hospital C-section rate. So you can look up the rate at which the hospital does C-sections. And it is the mo it is the number one determinant as to whether you will have a C-section or not based on the hospital rating. So if people are pregnant, I always say to them, look up where you're going to deliver if you have options. Now, rural hospitals are shutting down at such a record rate that a lot of women don't actually have access to care. And if they do, they're driving miles for it and they don't have options. So that really sucks. And I think, you know, the remedy to that used to be midwives and midwives were really stripped of a lot of their, um, you know, certainly reputation. And I interviewed midwives for, so I ended up doing another story a couple of years later for the New York times on all of this, because it became so glaringly obvious to me that C-section rates are uh, down, downstream from death. Because if you have a major surgery and you are sent home and you have a complication and after you have a baby, your body feels unlike anything you've ever, your body has ever felt like before. So again, it's one of these things where people say, oh, well, you're going to be in pain and you're going to have bleeding and you're going to, and you're like, well, is this normal? Is this not normal? Nothing about it feels normal. <laughs> so you, you have to kind of check your own instincts about what's normal or not, because otherwise you would be completely freaked out. And I think, you know, the maternal mortality problem in this country, and I'm pretty sure this just came out about a week ago, is the United States is the worst, has the worst rate for any developed nation. So what's going on? So my hypothesis is this is mostly from, you know, it's almost all when the woman gets home, she's not dying in the hospital. So she goes home, she has some symptoms, she doesn't know if it's normal or not. She calls the doctor. The doctor either tells her to come in or says, no, it sounds like what you're experiencing is normal. And she dies. And so when I say preventable, that's part of it. Now, it's also preventable because if you didn't have all these C-sections, you wouldn't have these women at home having such a rough recovery. So when you cut through the abdominal wall, 
one of the things that Dr. Shah Neil had said to me was, as surgeons, you're taught in med school, you never cut along the same line. You have to repeat the surgery, right? You don't reopen a scar. With C-sections, that's the practice. So you're re every time. So if you have a C-section with your first child, you're far more likely to have it with your second. By the time you have a third baby, they almost have no choice but to do a C-section. Now, nobody says this to the mom when they say like, you know, we think we, you think we've gone far enough. We'd like to do a C-section. They don't say, but like, you're now setting yourself up for future C-sections for, for every baby you may want to have after this. Do you want to try a little longer? There's no empowerment of the mom. Um, but, it, you know, I mean, I think the main thing is that with the black moms are dying at a much higher rate than any other you know, race. And my hunch is that it's probably more of a socioeconomic thing, that these are women who are going home, who do not have the support systems in place and probably have to go back to work. So if, you know, one of my friends has a C-section, she's at home and she has a night nurse taking care of the baby, right? And she's not allowed to sit up and people are bringing her food at least for the first week. Like that's a huge luxury that most women do not have. And if you think about, you know, you work at Taco Bell and you're dependent on that money, you're not getting maternity leave, right? So what happens? You stay home as long as you can and then you got to go back to work and you're worried you're going to lose your job. So you say everything's fine and you get up and you're walking around and you're doing shit you're not supposed to do after having a major abdominal surgery, right? Not to mention you're trying to breastfeed probably and taking care of a new baby and all the other stress that goes along with that. When I was reporting on this. Um, there was actually a very cool clinic. It was near Duke that somebody had come up with where they realized moms, um, low-income moms in particular, will skip their post-care appointments because they don't have time, they don't have money, they don't, you know, they're really focused exclusively on the baby's health. If there's any luxury of time, it goes to the baby. And so what they did was they they had the OBs and the pediatricians in the same office and they scheduled the appointments together. So mom would come because she'd want her baby to be, you know, you, when you first have a baby, you have to take it to the doctor, like, you know, once a week and then once a month, you're there all the time. Well, if they scheduled the mom's appointments at the same time and they saw both of them, they had like a hundred percent of moms show up, right? No brainer because she's going to go because of the baby, but you get to take care of her too. I mean, th that's just sort of like common sense thinking that we are not, we're, we're failing at like across the board. Um, and I think, you know, the C-section rate thing is dicey because people get really sensitive about it and they're, they're unable to look at it without an emotional lens of like, well, my C-section was necessary. And the doctor told me that if I didn't do it, I might've died. And when I would talk to Neil about that, he was really thoughtful about it. And he'd say, you know, it's one of these things where there's the, you know, the revisionist history on that one is impossible to deduce. He's like, every time I've done a C-section, you hold the baby up and you're like, thank God the baby's okay. Mom's okay. This is great. Right. And when you don't do the C-section, you're like, oh, great. This, thank God we didn't do the C-section. Right. And so you don't ever have this. Oh, well, yeah, I guess we probably didn't need to do that. But one of the midwives who I talked to was saying, or actually this was a nurse who had been, you know, working long enough to remember when women were strapped down and drugged so that they wouldn't remember giving birth. Um, so she had wild stories to tell. And she was saying to me that she really blames the heart rate monitors, that it used to be that she would sit with a woman, she would hold her hand, 
She'd stay with her the whole time and she'd talk to her about what's happening to her body and how it's what's going to come next and what it should feel like and how long the contractions are going to last. And she'd count and she'd breathe with them and she'd, you know, be in this experience. And she's like, and then we got these heart rate monitors. And now I sit at a desk outside of the room and I look at a panel of monitors. And if one spikes, I get to go in and talk to the mom, but otherwise I'm monitoring 10 patients. She's like, that's a totally different experience. And when you have a heart rate monitor going off and the mom, the mom's like, why is the alarm going off? Now her heart rate's also going up and you're creating a chain of events that is totally natural. The baby's heart rate should go up and down, especially as it's going, you know, getting ready to go down the vaginal canal. Those are normal things, but you freak the mom out. Her body has a reaction. The baby freaks out. Now you have a problem. Well, is it a problem or is it a problem we created? And the answer to that problem is always do a C-section. And it's not without unintended consequences. And I think, you know, maternal mortality is one of them, but I think there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, women are much more likely to have to have a hysterectomy at a young age if they've had a C-section. There's so many complications from this that we haven't experienced yet because this sort of um, bubble of C-sections had the women haven't reached that age of maturity yet to know what else will come with it. You have massive scars, you know, that's, what are you doing to your body? You know what I mean? It's kind of nuts. So all that stuff is interesting. And I think it is, it's a great example of over-intervention. What, um, what I've seen as well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is this, you know, we're talking about that there's a, an anticipation of a natural birth that then transitions into a C-sec in the hospital. I've seen it's it's even worse than that. It's like, we're just going to schedule you. Oh, I'm having my C-sec on this day. It becomes a thing of convenience. And if I don't think yeah. people, like you said, understand the detriment, especially, I mean, he, I was very fortunate. My little boy was born vaginally. Um, I mean, his his uh, mother. It was a very painful birth for her. He was it was back labor. He his amniotic fluid was um, was basically draining, so they had to induce, um, and you know, so it wasn't a pleasant experience for her. She done the whole uh, come by our no meds until about halfway through then she was screaming for him which i'm sure i would have been as well um so but it was it, luckily it was vaginal so you also now learn about the um the bacteria and how important right. it is for the immune system to try and come out through the birth canal my bonus boy um my wife my wife now her husband at the time i think he's like six one six two and my wife is half filipino so she's five, uh, four foot nine so maybe in that particular situation, because she had a C-sec, maybe that was appropriate. Maybe the baby was just too big anatomically for a potentially healthy, but maybe that was an application. I don't know. Or maybe it would have been fine with an episiotomy or whatever was needed. But when you think about the fact that for millennia, babies have been dropping into, you know, out onto the dirt and then kind of brushed off and then off you go. And even in paramedicine, when we respond, that's not an emergency. You know, if there's a problem, it's an emergency. If there's, a, you know, a cord around the throat or anything like that right now, this is an emergency. But a healthy birth is a healthy birth. You know, we just come along. The, what, the woman does pretty much everything herself. We help cut the cord, clean it up, warm it, and then, if need be, transport both. And that's, that's complicated because now it's two patients. And how do you secure an infant safely in the back of an ambulance? So, yeah, we've kind of overcomplicated that too. You know, we've created this vision that, you know, a, a birth is this you know emergent event and we forget that as we said with nutrition and movement human beings have been giving birth for hundreds of thousands of years and all of a sudden modern medicine is like no 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 we know we know what we're doing stand back when there's an issue with a birth 
that is when we're begging for those surgeons and these people to, to rescue our child. But the other, you know, 90 whatever percent of healthy births, we forget that this is what the body has been doing for so, so long. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, birth and death are these interesting paradoxes because they are so intensely personal and yet they're the most common experiences, right? We're all born and we all die. Um, and I think there is, it's hard for me not to, you know, sort of like put on my feminist cap and say women were delivering babies for that was how it was done, right? A woman a, was a midwife type figure in a tribe or whatever. And it was not an emergency, right? It was a celebration. It was a like a something that people really rallied around as a community. And certainly the women involved knew what they were doing. And it was taken out of those hands and put into a clinical male, more in medical environment. And I think, you know, I remember even with my pregnancies, my mom saying to me, this is so, you're so stressed. And I said, well, yeah, because like, I just had this test and now I'm not going to hear anything for like another month. I don't get to like, listen to the, you know, ultrasound again, or, you know, whatever it was. And she was said to me that, you know, with all four of us, the kids in our family, she said, I think I had one ultrasound and it was with your brother. It was my, the youngest in the family because I was over 40 or something. She said, other than that, the doctor would be like, if you bleed, come in, you know, but Otherwise you're fine. And she was like, I like rode my bike everywhere. She, you know, she just couldn't believe with my sister and I, like how much, how many visits there are and how scared they make you because they're like, okay, we're going to do this test. And if it comes back like this, then everything's okay. But if not, then, you know, these are your options, right? Rather than just the default of like, you're a young, healthy woman, you're going to be fine. Try to relax, get a lot of sleep, right? No big deal. Everything is so clinical that you're actually going into it, thinking of it as a hugely stressful event. One of the things that Neil had said to me too, which I loved, and I think is certainly in one of those stories, um, was you wouldn't show up for a marathon like without training for it, right? Like, why do we think that giving birth is like, you just show up and it's this sort of, whether it's passive or like, everything's going to go fine, which is what I did. I mean, I really didn't want to have drugs. I really did not want to... <laughs> Like I was very into like, this is my mom had all of us naturally and talks about it being like an animal experience where like you get to use your instincts. And I had a very, very tough, tough time with my son's birth and was in excruciating pain and actually had this whole thing happen where the nurse who was there with me at first was like, honey, I have tomorrow off when I come back, you're going to have a baby. This is so exciting. And I was like, great. And then I was basically like in a blackout of pain and I have a really high pain threshold. Like I've broken ribs several times and muscled through. I actually surfed on them for like two weeks once. Like, like I can handle pain or I thought I could. And this woman comes in and I look at her and she's like, remember me? I was the nurse that checked you in. And I said, I thought you had a day off. And she goes, oh, I did, sweetie. It's, it, I was home for 24 hours. I'm back now. And I was like, I had no sense of time. And I was so stubborn and I was so dehydrated because I wouldn't let them give me an IV. I mean, I was like a nut job. And I ended up getting an, um, uh, like some drugs and like just cried and looked at my husband and heard this woman like laboring and walking in the hallway and doing all the shit that I had been doing. And I was like, go tell her she doesn't have to do that. Like, this is nuts. But you know what? I hadn't prepared. 
I had not done, I mean, like we had gone to a natural childbirth class or some bullshit, but you know, I hadn't done breathing. I hadn't worked with a doula or anybody who could really under help me understand my body and what it was going to feel like and train for it. And I think that is what women used to do, right? The woman in the village would come and she would teach you what it was going to be like, or you would have experienced it because you would have been helping somebody else older than you have a baby and you'd see what it was like and you learn from that. We've so over sterilized it that people like me who are, you know, well-informed and really curious and want to be prepared for things was, I was wildly not prepared at all. Um, And I think my little sister learned from that and was super prepared and had natural childbirth and everything was great. So I think it's possible, but I don't think it's easy I mean, I, I think you have to be really have your head in the game and, you know, like be getting the right kinds of exercise and be thinking about what it's going to be like and get in the headspace to know how hard it's going to be and how unpredictable it's going to be and get through it. And I wasn't. And I think, um, you know, by the time that I, I mean, I, like, I don't know, there were a lot of issues with me, but like, I, I, like, I don't blame anybody who had a C-section. I think that that's not the point of this at all. It's that, um, first of all, you don't, you're not told you're in control of your own body. Like that's number one, you are in control of your body and you will be in control of your body. So you better know how to use it and you better know what your thresholds are for things and when to make decisions. And I mean, like my birth plan, like, you know, they're like, what music do you want to play? Like, that's not what you need to be preparing for. You're not going to hear any music. Okay. <laughs> like That's not a part of the deal. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I think that from the start, it's the power is taken away from the mom and given to the medical professionals in a way that of course it leads to a feeling of disempowerment and catastrophic outcomes, right? It's totally logical that that's how it would go versus making her feel like she's in charge and she's empowered and she's been preparing and she's training and she knows what's coming. And, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but she tried and she did everything the way that, you know, she was taught to do or that she'd seen before her and that she was in hand, she was in the hands of people who understood enough to be able to help her through those hard moments and not just default to the easy intervention exit plan. Well, it's funny you talk about the music because um, my son was born in Newport Beach Hospital. And when we went there to, to view it weeks before, some of the rooms looked over the beach. And then when it came to her actually, you know, getting ready for labor, we went in there and she got a, a beach view room. We were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. She didn't give a shit about <laughs> outside that window the moment the contraction started. So it's exactly like you're saying. The important thing was, and we, she, I forget, I think we had done one class with the, the Lamars, I think. I'm trying to remember now, but we'd certainly, you know, dived into a lot of the, the kind of self-help stuff that was available before. But I think, like you said, it's that empowerment element, you know, the the lack of control people now have over their hypertension and their diabetes. And then no one's hardly anyone in I'd say no one, hardly anyone in, in, a, in a white coat is telling you, look, for for now, let's put you on statins or whatever, because I'm worried about X, Y or Z. But let's talk about getting you down 10 pounds in the next three months or, you know, whatever it is, the long term Ill, uh, the health element and how we can reverse this 
-hmm. we can reverse so many of these diseases you know what i mean so this is the problem i think is that like you said we've lost our autonomy of our own bodies and we've lost the education of you know how many things are in our power and, and i think we touched on it last time there's no better example of what happened during covid you know everything that was actually in people's grass that they could facilitate within their own homes they're outside their front door to improve their their wellness to lose some weight improve their cardiovascular fitness which ultimately will improve their immunity they were told not to do everything that you could do that in was closed down but as we said last time fast food alcohol delivered to your doorstep so it's no wonder that we have so many people struggling to even understand how much is in their power when that environment is like you just stay in your house we're the experts we'll let you know when it's time to do that thing with your body that's right and the unintended consequences which are well known but aren't explained i mean i think you know c-sections any of these kinds of things we know the medical community knows very well what the unintended consequences could be they know statistically how likely they are or not they're not communicating that when they're making those decisions just the same way with covid we said like oh let's lock everything down and not think about what comes after right not think about inflation not think about the impact on children not think about whether this is actually you know going to save any lives or not we're we're really bad at that and you know you see this with diabetes really clearly where somebody is diagnosed as, you know, pre-diabetic and they're told to sort of, you know, watch their weight. Some stupid thing and watch my weight. Like I've been fucking watching my weight since I was 16. Like, what does that mean? Just keep watching the scale go up. I don't, you know, I mean, that's terrible advice. Oh, go sign up for a diet program. I mean, I think I love this thing that, you know, Greg has, Greg used to say a lot, which was this notion of you're the doc, you're a doctor. You see your patient once a year. You know, I'm a coach. I see them at least three times a week. If we can work together, we can actually make the change happen that you're suggesting the patients have because I have the accountability with them. And I think it's also a matter of we get so much advice. I don't think people used to get so much advice. I think we get advice, you know, you open Instagram and it's like, if if he doesn't call you back, like, this is what it means, right? Like, this is like, you're bombarded with these things. <laughs> you're like, is that true? I am so glad that we didn't have all of this when I was younger. I would have spent my entire day, like, looking up different advice about, you know, whatever problem I was having that day. But I think what's interesting is that we get all this advice, but we don't really get hard facts about consequences. And when somebody goes in and they're pre-diabetic, they have an opportunity to actually change things and prevent getting diabetes. That is a probably one of the most important inflection points I could imagine if I were a physician at being able to actually have an impact on a patient's life. You're on the precipice of this very serious disease that will be debilitating, that will make you more likely to get dementia and cancer and all of these other illnesses that you will die from. You get diabetes, you may have to amputate your foot, your leg, your arm, right? Not to mention all of the increased risk with heart disease. You are on the verge of getting this. Here's what you can do about it. Like, I can't, I'm, That's that would be exciting. And actually kind of when I'm saying this, it reminds me of like when my son was little and I grabbed his arm and his arm became like dislocated and I was like beyond upset because I couldn't believe that I had hurt him. 
And we went to the doctor and the doctor was like, oh, I love this. And I was like, you love that? Like my kid is screaming in pain. I'm clearly an abusive mother. Like, what do you love about this? And he was like, because I can fix it. And he's like, I just do this. And he like, you probably know the move. Like he took his arm and he swung it and his elbow or whatever just popped right back into place and he stopped crying. And he's like, I, I love that so much because it's one of the very few things that I can do where somebody comes in and they're suffering and I can fix it like that. And I actually think pre-diabetic patient appointments should be like that. And they're not. Instead, it's just a, well, we're going to onboard you onto the diabetes management program next time I see you, probably. Um, and it's like, what, a third of Americans are pre-diabetic? It's a, like a massive opportunity for physicians to do the right thing. And maybe they don't know enough. I mean, we have to remember nutrition is taught for one day in med school. It's not a priority. Well, also, um, to be fair to the medical community, I mean, I hear this over and over again, they get 10 minutes with a patient. I mean, how do you have that long-form conversation? And then secondly, how many people, because of this environment, walk in going, I need that statin. I saw the commercial. Those people were happy. They were dancing. I need that thing as well. I want to be happy. I want to dance. You know, so not only have we created an environment for ill health, we've allowed these fucking awful commercials brainwashing people that this pill will fix everything and you give our physicians this minute window to try and undo it and so what's with the lack of education in med school and you know a lack of ownership and understanding because they themselves are morbidly obese the doctor or the nurse what's the easiest thing let me get my prescription pad let me write this thing there you go see you in three months so it's this vicious circle I mean, excuse me this perfect storm of all these things that are wrong coming together so it's not just the doctors it's not just the patient it's it's all these things that that combine and so we have to start picking them apart i yeah and i i don't i definitely don't blame the doctors i think that the amount of time they're having to spend on you know like epic patient record systems. This is not why they went to med school. I, I think there's a reason why the burnout rate with doctors is so high. I don't think they're getting to practice their art. I mean, medicine was an art. You know, it's an art and a science, but it's really like you're learning about people and patterns in ways that probably we don't even quite understand. If you look at, you know, an old school family doctor who saw the whole family and would go to the house and would treat all kinds of a range of problems. The amount of experience and wisdom that that person carries with them is, I don't even know if it's really possible anymore with the way that the protocols work. And um, someone who's very good old friends with Greg had said to me that um, I, I was asking him what he thought was wrong with medicine. He's a doctor. And he said, you know, honestly, it used to be that when we walked down the hallway, the administrators would run like they'd be scared of the doctors, especially surgeons. And he said, now it's the other way around. The administrator, you see the administration and you like try to like duck into an OR or someplace where they're not less likely to bother you. And he said, I think it's that in the, the, you know, power structure has been inverted where it's not about the care providers, it's about the paper pushers and the people who are, you know, making accountable for the money coming in. Um, and I, I mean, it, that's probably an oversimplification, but I think that, you know, you can see that in a lot of different ways. And I mean, I think one of the things that we're going to do with Broken Science, the Broken Science Initiative is this sort of tag teaming off of the philosophy of science and where that broke and how it misled the sort of larger 
zeitgeist of science and certainly medical research down a path that led to this replication crisis that we're in, where most research findings are false and we're not able to replicate results. And clinical trials are coming out all the time that are being fast-tracked to the patients and have no efficacy. And kind of wed that with this bedrock of actual skills, you know, things like measurements and what's a standard that anybody can learn and should know, whether you're a grown-up or a child, that will allow you to assess up better what recommendations you take for yourself. I mean, a lot of the Broken Science Initiative will be about this kind of personal empowerment through practice. And it's really hard. I mean, I when I had that women's health podcast, I often had women who would email me and say, you know, I have this thing and can you look into it? Or do you know anything about this? Or I was told about this drug I should take. And my blanket advice, not knowing anything and certainly not able to give any medical advice was always like, you want a clinical trial of people who are your age, who look like you, and really all you care about is all-cause mortality. So if it doesn't have that, you don't care. Because if they say like, oh, well, you know, prevent this from returning for five years, but you're going to die five years earlier from something else, don't take it. And COVID was such a shit show of this that um, I think people are, I mean, I'm not optimist. I think people are waking up to it a little bit more, but to your point about the drug commercials and just sort of the capture of medicine by pharma, there was a series of ads and I don't know if they're on anymore, but I, I think I, scraped them from the internet so I can find them for you. But it was for one of these drugs that you take if you get COVID that's been proven to like maybe not be so great, right? It wasn't ivermectin or any of the controversial ones. This was like a Pfizer drug. And, you know, there's all kinds of rules about what you can say in those drug ads. And this one didn't have any of the usual, you know, these are the side effects that go on for 20 minutes at the end of the ad. And it didn't have anything about clinical trials. I mean, it was very odd and it was structured in this way where I was like, if you have, you know, these symptoms or you've recently had a virus, like not naming COVID, you should talk to your doctor about this. And they name the drug. And I was like, is that a drug ad? It looks, it's like done as a PSA. And you basically, they give you a website and let's say it's like www. like save the whales from viruses or something like totally unrelated to the drug. It not, it like immediately reverts to the website for the drug. So it's a drug ad, but it's a workaround so that they can get around even the the bullshit laws that are in place now to protect against you know false claims and misleading promises and all these other things that you see. So it's not getting that is not getting better. That is getting worse. And I think the, the, you know, when I say the capture, the, you know, kidnapping of science in medicine, in the sort of cycle of publish or perish, getting grants, staying on that grant train, getting tenure, that I don't actually, I think that that's so broken. I don't think we fix that. I think we kind of like, you know, build our own house, build something different, build citizens that are robust enough that they understand how to stay healthy and how to look out for, you know, kind of corruption in the way that things are explained. So knowing that all you care about is absolute risk. I don't care about this population versus that population. We have a great 
Um, we have a lot of original content coming out on brokenscience.org. And um, Malcolm Kendrick is writing something about what's in a placebo. Because I was talking, we were talking about placebos and people were always like, oh, well, you know, that's the nothing, right? That's the control. Well, no, it's not nothing. Very often it has stuff in it that has a negative effect. It's a great way of controlling the outcome of a trial. Because if you have a lot of people drop out who are in the placebo, placebo group, you can drop out people in the trial group. If you have people who have a negative effect in placebo, you say, oh, out of the 10 people, five of them in the placebo group had a negative effect. Only four in the intervention group did. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So it's like if you have something shitty in the placebo and people are having a bad effect, it cancels out the bad effect in the clinical trial for the drug. It, it, it's so bad, right? Like, why can't you just give people a Tic Tac and tell them that it's the pill, right? It, it, like, they should do placebo groups on placebo groups. They should have an intervention group of people who show up and they say, okay, great, you're in the trial, but we're not doing anything to you. Go home. Come back. Why don't they do that? And it's like the placebo effect. Well, it's not a placebo effect the way everybody thinks about it. If you're actually still taking a drug. And they did that with the vaccines, right? There was stuff in the placebo groups for the vaccines for COVID that people still don't know about. And they don't have to report what's in the placebo. Hmm. So it, like that in and of itself is shit science. That is not, you're not getting results that you can verify, that you can understand, that you can make conclusions out of what is this intervention group actually experiencing versus those who didn't take the intervention because you've given something to the group that didn't take the intervention. It's, I mean, it's not dumb. It's by design. And I think that's where people need to get wise is that this isn't, we're not at a point anymore. Like I said, with the farm bill and the, you know, starvation problem in the United States where people were trying to problem solve and they had a negative outcome because they didn't, have enough data and they didn't have enough research and they didn't know what they were doing and they were trying to fill a demand for something with just something they had an oversupply of this is different this is about money and because of covid i actually think it's about money and control well speaking of the impact of greed on so many areas that are stealing lives all over the planet i uh i sat down with larry doyle i think he i think it's nbc was was the network he was with one of the most revered journalists from back in the day from what i understand he interviewed uh, nelson mandela the day after he got out he was the first interview he did so that kind of explains to people the level of trust that you know journalism and his organization had back then and i asked him how how have we devolved from the journalism that you were in in your pinnacle to this fucking poor excuse for news where the screen's divided into four four assholes argue with each other and they have the audacity to call that news so and his thing was and i think you touched on it you just mentioned it briefly in the last conversation he said it used to be that other companies were making the money and that funded the news to be news and i grew up in england so then bbc we pay our TV license that's basically a tax-based news. And I've always thought, I've always adored the BBC. Is it flawless? Absolutely not. But I think it's close to, yes. And even Larry held BBC as the best, um, you know, journalistic organization to this day. Um, but he said what happened is, I forget, that, but there was some sort of uh, shift in the way that the companies were um, within this organization that now they said the, the news needs to start making money. And the moment they started 
needing people to watch the news and and you know filling advertising space between these these segments is when he saw that devolution so again from an english pair of eyes coming from the bbc to here it's clear as day it's like well you're clickbaiting the shit out of this because you want to you want me to watch the coca-cola commercial that's right after that you're going to get millions of dollars for but now you see the same thing like you said in in all these other areas too so i think that's such a huge wake up and i think that what you're doing with the broken science initiative is going to really help educate people is firstly being aware of how much influence business has on areas that should be holistically health or farming i mean you know monsanto and this monocrop and these you know this drive towards monopoly on our very food and the fragility of that that we saw through covid versus bolstering local organic farms again like we did for millennia um you know it, it's so important for people to understand that there really is now this absolutely disgusting level of greed that has infiltrated and corrupted you know our food our air our water and, and then obviously medicine and even our our information that we get now to the point where you have two camps are you fox are you cnn well hands up yeah you in the back no they both fucking awful where's that camp where's the can we cancel them both and actually get back to real news not opinions so, I mean, on the news front, I feel like I've thought a lot about this. And I think there is a really, we won't, it'll be a hundred years before somebody does a really accurate autopsy on it. But I think there was such a confluence of things that happened at the same time that caused the news to become completely unraveled. So when I was at Northwestern, it was like 2004, let's say around then, bias became a huge topic. So there was a book that came out that was called Bias. We all had to read it. We all had to talk about what our personal bias were in terms of, you know, social, cultural, political, whatever. We were taught, I mean, I think forced to basically agree we would never sign a petition. So somebody walks by and they say, this is to save the whales. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm a journalist. I can't sign that. Why? Because someday you might cover something about whales and you don't want somebody to think that you have this strong view, right? Somebody will dig up your signature. And I think what that did in terms of content was it made everything um, subjective. So if you did a news story, you would be writing facts, but you knew the facts you included were creating a narrative. And your news judgment is what they called it, would be to determine what stories you wanted to do, what was most important for the public to know, but also what facts and what sources you decided to include. Because you'd maybe interview 100 people for a story, you'd include two of them, right? If it was a newspaper story, especially. It's like 500 words or less. Um, I think because people became so obsessive about their bias and their lens and how they felt, it became this, oh, well, it's Emily's news. And now all you see is commentary. You can't turn on the news and not just get analysis. And that's not, that's very different. Opinion and news were separate sections. They're not even, I mean, in most major newsrooms, they're not even in the same building or the same floor. You don't interact. The opinion people are allowed to like argue with each other and have opinions. The news people are not allowed to have opinions. And the idea that there wasn't always bias, well, of course there was, but it was facts that were put forward as the most important thing that you're sharing. And actually, I don't know that that's true. And part of that is this, I mean, everybody's got their own personal brand, right? It, the narcissism is off the charts with some of this stuff. It, the way that I was taught to be a reporter or a journalist, 
Twitter would have been like the antithesis of what was would have been acceptable. The idea that you would be reporting before an editor could read it, no fact checkers are looking at it. You're reporting out the White House like, oh, I just saw Trump leave the building like holding hands with some woman. Wait, what? Like, no way. I mean, I'm very good friends with, I haven't talked to them in a while, but I'm sure we're still good friends, two White House correspondents who have crazy stories of like, you know, all the people that Bill Clinton hooked up with on Air Force One in front of them and nobody reported on it. That's not what they they were there to report on. Now, you can't get a job as a White House correspondent if you don't export correspondent if you don't have a million Twitter followers. So how do you get a million Twitter followers? Well, you have to re- you have to start saying some stuff that's going to really rev people up. Well, facts aren't going to rev people up. What are opinions? So now you're trying to get a job as a factual reporter by putting all of these high test opinions out there. What? Like this is ass backwards. And then you add to it the 24-hour news channels, which, you know, maybe there's enough news to be reporting on 24 hours. Probably not. So you're regurgitating, you're dramatizing. Hyperbole becomes the name of the game. It's all about the personalities. And it's like basically sports, everything I hate about sports radio, where people just yelling over each other all the time, right? And then you take, you add into that the internet, which killed the classified section. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but the the sort of life cycle of a news story is really interesting. And having worked for newspapers, magazines, and network news TV, I was able to like live it which is that when I was at ABC, we would have morning meeting with the executive producers for the shows. And everybody basically would, you'd be responsible for reading like five to 10 newspapers every morning before that meeting. So you'd scan them and you'd be looking for stories that you thought would be appropriate for the shows. And in that meeting, you had a chance to pitch whatever you want. So uh, my five newspapers, I would say like, you know, especially because I'm mostly covering murder at that point, I would say like this murder happened, hot wife, husband totally did it, right? They've got these cute kids. They live in the suburbs, blah, 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 blah. I already know this defense attorney. I can get on a plane this afternoon. We can get that as an exclusive. That's sort of how those things went. TV was the first place that I, and you don't refer to people as sources, they're characters, which is was deeply disturbing to me when having come from newspapers. But also there's no original reporting. You're not going and digging up stories. I mean, unless you're like the creme de la creme of the investigative unit and you have already made your way so far in that you can kind of write your own check. But even with them, they're following other stories. So you're mostly reporting off of newspapers, maybe some magazines, but magazines are also copying newspapers. So newspapers might do, a, you know, a local newspaper is doing a write-up on some crime that happened in Boston. A magazine reporter will look at it and think like, oh, this should be a 4,000 word piece. I'm going to do a deep dive into it. By the time it crosses my radar as a TV producer, I'm either, I've seen now a couple of these stories in the newspaper that I'm following, or I've read it as a long form piece in a magazine. It's not because I was in Boston. It's not because Boston cops called me. It's not because like I know somebody who's involved. It's all because of these other news outlets, right? So as the newspaper industry has crumbled, the entire news cycle has crumbled because everybody else is relying on that. So you have a couple of things. Like you used to have two newspapers in every city 
and they would rival each other and they would hold each other accountable. So if one got the facts wrong, the other one would cream them with a story. That doesn't happen anymore. Most cities don't have two equally powerful newspapers anymore. There's no rivalry. And likewise, you don't have anybody at the top in, let's say, TV reporting getting local stories because they're not being done. And when they are, to your point about clickbait, they're like superficial bullshit stories that are often being reported off of press releases. So the whole thing has been cannibalized. And then I think the other factor that I've identified that seems really important is that it used to be that families, big, powerful families owned newspapers. And they operated at like a 23% profit margin and families were happy with that, right? I mean, they also had lots of investment in oil or whatever. <laughs> but this was a civic responsibility. It was a pride. And as the, your former guest was saying, it was something where it was, I mean, like the New Yorker, I think has never been profitable. But Condé Nast has always viewed it as an important, it's, you know, maybe their most important magazine because it's doing this deep dive intellectual reporting. It builds the reputation of the whole company. So they spend money on it that they know they're not going to get back. And I think operating at 20, I mean, Walmart operates at like what a 10% profit margin, a 23% profit margin is like phenomenal. But as soon as you start trading anything, you know, on a public exchange, it's all about what are your projective projected returns and what are those returns and did they meet the projections? So if you project, oh, we're going to make 23% because that's what we've made for 50 years. People are like, oh, they're not growing. Sell. Well, so if you start selling the stock because it's at a 23% profit margin and it wasn't 23.5, then what happens? The power pushes in on the you know newsroom now and starts cutting costs, getting rid of staff, getting rid of editors, getting rid of the you know really essential roles in the product declines. And we've seen all of that happen, all of those different things I just mentioned within a relatively short period of time. And the internet has come on as just an overload of information. So people don't even feel the onus so much anymore to turn on the news. I had this funny experience just this last weekend with my kids where I got this trivia. I mean, I am terrible at trivia, but I love trivia. So I mean, another funny story when my husband and I were dating, we would go to pub quiz with friends. And I like wasn't allowed to watch TV as a kid. So I'm kind of like, I lived in a bomb shelter. Like I didn't, you know what I mean? Like I played outside, but like, I don't know any, like my husband watched TV as a kid. It seems like all the time. I'm sure that's not true, but he also has like the best recall memory of anybody I've ever met. So like, you can't play, you can't watch Jeopardy with him because he answers before the question is like fully put out there. So he's like a whiz at pub quiz because he remembers everything. And he like songs from the eighties, he's got it right. I mean, he just, he can do that. But there was one where it was like we had a worksheet and it was like match the Greek god or goddess to their power. And Bobby was like, give it to Emily. <laughs> this is the one thing she's going to be able to do. <laughs> and I got them all right. And the guy said that I got one wrong. And we ended up getting the you know guy writing pub quiz. And we got into this argument about it. And he was like, you seem to know a lot about this Greek mythology stuff. I'm just going to let you have it because I have no idea. Maybe the sheet's wrong. But I had so this weekend we were trying to play this American trivia, you know, kids version with our kids. And my son, who's 11, got really upset and was like, Mom, we don't learn this stuff at school. Like, I have no idea. And I was like, These aren't things you learn at school. You know, like, what city is known for jazz? 
right? Like just random trivia. And so I was thinking about it and I realized, you know what? We learned all that stuff from news. My mom would have NPR on in the kitchen. We would watch the McNeil layer hour, right? Like as she was making dinner, my dad would sit around and they'd talk about whatever was in the news of the day. We got the Wall Street Journal. My dad read it at the kitchen table for breakfast every morning. Like you couldn't avoid it. I hate the news now so much, especially the local, like the bacteria in your refrigerator is going to kill you. Stay tuned. That like, I don't have it on ever. And I don't really want the kids being exposed to it. But the... Again, the unintended consequence of me thinking that I'm sheltering them from the garbage out there is they're not learning some of these sort of civic things that you're exposed to a lot as a kid when you do have a healthy news media, which we clearly do not have. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I I keep adding on to my list of goals for the Broken Science Initiative, and I think Greg indulges me, but he's also like, we got to stay focused, Emily. <laughs> But I think, you know, my goal is to restore criti- critical thinking in children. That's my primary objective. And I think doing that through science is such a natural way of teaching people to be curious and inquisitive and really being able to sess up when somebody is telling you something, but they're not telling you the whole thing, or they haven't told you the most important points, but they're trying to make a conclusion about something. I think there's really easy ways of sort of decoding language to be able to do that. But I also think there has to be a component of all of this that's sparking discussion within families so that kids are learning these things. And it doesn't have to be all about, you know, the corruption of science or our government or, you know, these sort of big depressing topics, but knowing what that looks like and how it affects your day-to-day life, I think is actually really important education for kids to be getting today that we all had without realizing we had it. Um, And I don't, I think uh, there's a lot more families like ours that aren't watching the news and aren't talking about these things in a way where their kids are being exposed to them. And then, then what, then the kids become super easy to manipulate. Absolutely. When I was little, there were a couple of shows. One was called John Craven's News Round. It was almost like a kid's version of the BBC, but it would be again, here's what happened. Here's the, you know, the, the famine in Africa. And there would be, you know, images of what was happening. And then there was a thing called John, uh, Blue Peter. And it was, again, almost like you're talking about exposing you to whether it's some amazing record breaking athlete or, you know, whatever, but there would always be an altruistic element. And attached to that would be like, what can we do about helping these poor people in Africa? And it was beautiful. And then when I took Ty home a few years ago, um, we were actually in Portugal with my mom, um, but it was British television on the TV because I unplugged cable here like 11 years ago now. I, I was just so sick of the, the commercials between these kids' television shows. Um, and so he was like, oh, my God, this, this this is amazing. And it was like history and science. And, and you forget that, you know, th- there's so much advertising. There's so much, like you said, kind of ulterior motives to so much television these days with our children. And now you add in this kind of, you know, hyper woke element too, where you're confusing an eight year old, like, am I a boy? Am I a girl? Fuck, I don't know. You know, it's like just the, the, you know, the, the element of what's going on in the world. What does the world look like? What are some amazing places in the world? What are some amazing, unique and different people in the world? What are the amazing different religions that I'm not a part of? You know, and you start building this picture of this beautiful planet that we're on. But what mm-hmm. we see with this clickbait, bullshit is you know everyone's trying to kill you we're gonna have a nuclear war 
you've got to be a giant asshole to be a president in the United States. You know, it's just it's just hate and clickbait and divisiveness. And like you said, consumerism. If, yeah. Instead of unity, community, similarities, celebrating differences. And so that that's the nucleus of our children's upbringing. And then when some bad things happen, you say, hey, this is going on at the moment. This is a thing. But that's not what they see all day, every day on their phones, on their TVs. I mean, I, I try and avoid restaurants because they have TVs everywhere now. You can't even sit and have a conversation with your family without there being 12 blinking screens within your eyes that keep pulling your focus away. We went skiing over the kids' vacation. So we were like up in Vermont. And... Um, at a nice resort at a fancy hotel on two different occasions, there were other families sitting at tables where the kids had earphones on and they were on their iPads. And it's like, I, I think I would just start crying if we sat at a table at a fancy restaurant and my kids like put their, first of all, I'd be like, go to the room. Like, I'm not going to buy you a fancy dinner if you're not going to talk to me, but also like how isolating and depressing, right? I just, I mean, and I'm I, like, I'm not saying that there's, you know, isn't a time to tune out and binge watching shows that serves a purpose, right? And I think we have to be realistic about the environment. But somebody, I feel like I've now heard this from a couple of people about this idea of, you know, it used to be conquering territory was what, you know, superpowers needed to do in order to be a superpower or an empire or whatever, and, um, you know, you could say this about like oil, right? Whoever controls the oil controls the world. And now it's attention. And it's just a huge grab for attention span. And that your attention is what everybody is trying to grab for control. Control over money, control over you, control over all of these things. Which, you know, when you start thinking about it like that and you look at younger people or even like, you know, peers, right? And you see how much time we're all spending looking at a screen versus looking at each other. And I'm definitely not trying to like, you know, throw stones. I'm far from perfect at any of this. But I think even just a consciousness and awareness of what is that taking you away from is so important and and so hard because it's so tempting and it doesn't seem like a big deal. I'm just checking Instagram for a minute. I'm not like going to be gone for hours. Well, maybe you will over the accumulation of the whole day and how many times you looked at it. So I think all of those things, they're eroding something really important. And I don't know either that we can stop them. So I think at least providing people with tools to recognize, you know, it's sort of like this idea of, it's not about rot memorization of something. It's about learning how to learn that people have forgotten. And I think that that actually kind of goes nicely with playing. You know, it's like learning how to play, learning how to create and make new games and be competitive and lose. And all of those, you know, what you would say is like tangential lessons for be participating in something. It's the same with learning, you know, in educating children in a way where whether it's conversation at the dinner table or it's, um, you know, what you have on the TV and it's hard to balance that when, you know, most people aren't thinking that way. Let's just say most people have been sort of taken by all of this. And so, I mean, even with my son, who's 11, I feel like we're really up against this like screen time stuff and how much he wants to play video games. And I don't want to be the asshole mom who's like, go play 
outside all the time. But then I'm like, well, I don't care. I'll be the asshole mom because you're going to thank me when you're 20. And, you know, I think there's actually, Greg and I were just talking about this. There's such an opportunity with kids because the default is so fucked up that if your kid doesn't have an iPhone or an iPad, they might be a loser for a few years. But the things that they're going to learn are going to advance them so far beyond the norm. I mean, it's like, you know, if we grew up in a really competitive environment where everybody was reading and playing sports and, you know, working in their father's lab on the weekend or whatever, and the kids today are just playing Fortnite all weekend, and you spend five hours a week playing sports and reading and, you know, doing these other things, you're going to be way ahead. So it's like, and I, that makes me feel really old, but I do think like the, the, the baseline has sunk so low that if you just try to do a little bit more, you're going to be leaps and bounds beyond the other kids in a couple of years. And I will be hated for it. I'm sure but uh, (laughs) I'm trying my best to remember that and not just want to be loved. You know what I mean? In the moment, which is the challenge. I remember coming home from college and we weren't allowed to have sugar cereal, right? Like my mom actually like I, we, I grew up with a lot of animals in part because my mom, you know, Whole Foods in Boston used to be called Bread and Circus, and then it was bought and turned into Whole Foods, but so it was like- an- Bread and Circus, you said? That's an uh-huh. unusual name for a Whole Foods store. Uh-huh. And, um, and so it was like my mom would, you know, drive into Cambridge and get the healthy stuff and get the desserts that didn't have any sugar that we all thought were nasty. Um, and my mom was an amazing cook. And so she would make these like French meals all the time. And so we were really lucky, but she started recognizing that they were putting dye in foods and it made her really upset. And so she went and bought a flock of sheep. She, my mom's like, I mean, she's amazing, but as a kid, I thought she was nuts. And now I sort of see where <laughs> I get some of my crazy from. But, um, and so we had goats and sheep and horses and all these animals in part because my mom was like, I want us to be able to control the, our own food supply as much as we can. And I mean, this is like 40 years ago. Um, but I think a little bit about how I was so embarrassed when friends would drive me home and they'd be like, you live on a farm. And I'd be like, no, I don't. You know, like I'm a cool city girl. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> my mom just likes all these animals. But I learned a lot from taking care of all those animals and having to get up. I was just telling my kids a funny story, about like getting up early in the morning when it was like, you know, still dark out and freezing cold. And I would feed the sheep. We'd put molasses in the water so that it wouldn't freeze. And the sheep would run at me and I'd have to, I'd like hop over the fence with the grain, try to dump the grain in the bowl before they like knocked me over. But most of the time, like half the grain would go all over them because they, you know, were too close and too dumb to like back up and how like scary. And like, that was like, that's what woke me up in the morning. (laughs) My kids think it's like the funniest thing in the world. You know what? It was also really hard work. And I think I got paid like, you know, $5 a week or something to do that. And I was happy to do it. And we're not happy all the time, but I think, you know, it's what I was going to say before is I remember coming home from college and my younger brother and sister were eating sugar cereal and watching TV while they were eating. And I looked at my mom and was like, what the hell has happened around here? Where are the sheep? (laughs) And she looked at me and she goes, um, you know what? It's, it's easier to say yes than it is to say no. And I'm old and tired and I'm tired of saying no all the time. Mm -hmm. I feel really grateful that she said no as much as she did to me, you know, because I know now as a mom, it is hard. It's much easier to just say, yeah, sure. You can have it. Yeah. than it is to say no and get into a fight and have to go down that route. I'd much rather say yes to everything. 
I was blessed with the fact that, and I think it was partly one of my parenting styles early on was just simply to explain my son, explain to my son why something was kind or unkind. So we did the slap on the on the thigh when he was really small. They did the timeout, which is an epic failure. And then it became to that. So that communication was forged very, very early. So when I said, no, you know, you can't do this right now. This is why it was amazing. Like I never really had much resistance and it was and it was always like you can do it a little bit but then we're going to go out and do this thing or you can go now and you know play this game because we just went to the beach today or whatever it was so it was like that balance but um yeah and i grew up on a farm myself and it was I, the same thing we had the muesli you know and all that stuff and and it wasn't that they were coming from some hardcore place it was just i don't think those sugar cereals had really infiltrated the uk back then um enough to really be all you saw on the aisle most of it was even if it was like wheat abix and cornflakes it didn't it didn't have sugar you added sugar if you wanted to but that was the norm you know and i'd come into school and in, in elementary school exhausted and they would you know be all judgy like i must have been up on you know all night watching tv and i wasn't i was lambing you know or up in the morning feeding the geese and mucking out stables and that's that was the norm so i always tell people the reason why I'm so passionate about this is I feel completely blessed that I was by, you know, a, a, an accident of DNA. I happened to be born in a family where we grew our food, where I raised animals, where I saw my parents treat people of all socioeconomic backgrounds the same, the nice ones and, and not like the, the shitty ones, you know. So I had this amazing lens that allows me to have this perspective and not look down my nose at people that aren't you know, almost 50 and in great shape still or whatever it is, but the opposite. This is what I had as my baseline and this is where I found myself. How fucking lucky am I? Let me share that perspective and let me kind of point out, well, this is why people are dying over here because on every corner is a liquor store, a gun shop, and like you said, a bodega selling shitty food. So maybe we can change that. So it is an important perspective for when you know, people have been brought up in that that area. And I think there is a, a balance. Like these some people that homeschool and the kids never have anything, you know, there's a potential for them to lose their shit when they, <laughs> when they get their freedom and then be in McDonald's for the next ten years. But but yeah, I think there's there's a lot to that and I think we have to work even harder and it is exhausting for parents because now you have really bad food, fast food, you know, drive through this and um, and then you have the screens and you have, like I said, even even supposedly the most revered figure in the US is an asshole the last X amount of years. So that's both sides. I mean, I mean, like we, we have to deal with so much to still create a physically and mentally healthy and compassionate child. Mm -hmm. And the negative. I mean, I think there's just so much negative that kids are exposed to. Um and a, on a micro level on the social media stuff that we now know, you know, Facebook was behind in terms of promoting things that made kids feel insecure, insecure or even suicidal because it had a greater engagement level. I mean, that's disgusting and sick, but clearly true um, to things like watching the local news, right? I mean, I, I love the idea of a kid's publication that talks about the news, but also gives you a, a, some agency of how you can get involved and how you can make change. And I mean, the cynic in me hears that and thinks like, oh, well, everyone's going to try and get involved in like, I mean, we've had this even with our kids, right? Where there's some fund that's like for, you know, cancer research or, and my husband's like, oh, 
geez, you know, it's gonna, we're going to be funding the cancer. The kids are working all as hard as they can to fund the wrong kind of cancer research, but we have to be, I don't know, encouraging of their activism, whatever it may be, and then work separately on figuring out what kind of activism do you really want to, or how do you know if this is the right kind of, you know, call to get behind or not? Um, those are two separate things probably, but I mean, it's sort of like the pregnancy thing. I just think there's so much that people are told to worry about that's outside of their control. And, you know, sometimes when I have a new client who's like really in a, in on the crisis management side, who's like really in a fire, I explained to them that like, when you're really under a lot of stress, your brain shuts down, you're not able to rationally think about things. And that's okay. That's sort of why I'm here to help you through all of this. But the other side of it is also you have to really, and this is an exercise I suggest anybody do who's feeling like they're in a panic or in a crisis situation and they don't know what to do, is to make a list of things that are in your control and things that are not. And there's going to be things that you can do every day. Like I often tell people that having a routine is an incredibly important thing to do when you're in a crisis. Not because you have to, you know, get up and eat your breakfast at a certain time because you're not leaving your house, right? You could eat breakfast at 11, but it allows your brain to have a framework whereby you can start feeling like you're in control and you can relax because of that. You know what's coming up next. And I think the same as being able to say, okay, I can't control what the media is going to write about me. I can't control what my friends are going to think about me, but I can control how I communicate, how I'm feeling. I can control how I think of myself. I can control what I eat today. I can control, you know, how much exercise I get. And just even giving yourself like three or four really simple things that you can do that are in your control starts to calm the mind and give you some sensibility rather than being sort of frantic about all these things that you really cannot control. And, you know, I think that's probably good for everybody just navigating the world we're living in, where you're bombarded with all of this negative information that you can't do anything about. I mean, this is how I feel about a lot of the like race stuff being taught to elementary school kids or even some of the transgender stuff. I'm like, we're over explaining these things to kids at an age where A, their brains are not capable of making these kinds of judgments or decisions. And B, like, Kids in kindergarten aren't going to fix systemic racism. So what are we asking them to do? We're putting this burden on them for concepts that uh, grownups struggle with. Grownups are not able to really master and children certainly can't master. And I don't think people are born racist, right? Well, so, exactly. I mean, look at look at a kindergarten. If you want the perfect example of where racism, racism doesn't exist, go to a kindergarten, go to a pre-K class. That's not, you know black or white or hispanic that's laura and you know emmanuel and whatever so this is the problem is that it's us we need to stop infiltrating the schools as much and look in the fucking mirror and look at the tv and look at what the president says about you know mexican immigrants or you know whatever it is these are the the mouthpieces of the world you're the ones that need to fix yourselves not project onto our children yeah we tell our kids all the time that like you know, humans share 99.9% of all DNA. Like there's really no difference between us. And actually like apes are pretty close. <laughs> so like, you know, we're all connected. And when people try to tell you that we're not, or that there are these clear lines and boundaries between, you know, who's this or who's that, they're neglecting the basic biology of how we're all made. We're all the same. And experiences certainly can be different and are. 
and that's informative, but not when you're really young, right? But you don't need to really worry about that. It's your experience. And we know the way the brain works that, you know, kids can't even identify themselves as individuals until they're like two or something crazy, right? So, I mean, it's interesting because for Greg's birthday this year, I, you know, you can't get him a gift, right? The man has everything he could ever want more. So I was like, I'm going to write him an essay and I'm going to write about predictive value, which is one of the things that is sort of one of the bedrocks for us in this broken science initiative is that things should have predictive value and that relationships have predictive value and that this is a way that humans think. And I had become kind of obsessed with, but I hadn't really talked to him a lot about the way the brain develops. So I wrote this whole essay for him. That was a birthday essay about predictive value. And I was one of the parts of it, which I still am really fascinated by because we're almost taught to not use the predictive part of our brain. But I actually think, you know, you're born, the brain develops from the back to the front. And so babies are born with the back of their brain, you know, more developed than any other part. And what what is that? That's instinct. And so, you know, they know to cry. They know there are certain reactions that they have to things without knowing anything. And, you know, this isn't based on research. This is like me being sort of theoretical about things. But I actually think that's predictive value. It's predictive value that's been passed down for centuries through evolution to as, you know, before you have language, before you have the ability to be mobile and independent in any way, you have some predictive value that's implanted in you before you're born. And that's your instinct. And then as the brain starts to grow towards the front, you start learning language and you learn logic. And then by the time that, you know, your brain is fully developed and your prefrontal cortex is in place, well, what's that? It's judgment, right? Well, what's judgment? Judgment is being able to take your instincts, your language, your logic, put them all together and create an assessment about how to respond to a situation. That's judgment. And so I think the entire development of the brain is all based on predictive value because if we can predict things, we can have control over them and we have free will, which I really believe is, you know, innate in humans and any denial of free will is really denying the human of their spirit. And so I think those things are all, it's, it's kind of fascinating when we look at scientific research and we say it's not predictable, you can't replicate it, you can't that we're not actually even trying to, we're looking at data and trying to find relationships between things. Yes, but that's a correlation, not a causation for something. And what we really want to know is, is cause because you can do something about cause. Um, and Bob, my husband, who's going to be writing for us is, was just talking to me about this. And I was like, you should write that as a, one of your posts, because he was talking about how, when we talk about a disease being multifactorial, it just means we don't know what it, what, what it is. And that that's actually a great indicator that we have no idea. Like diseases aren't multifactorial. Something gets fucked up and it causes all these multifactorial symptoms to present. The root cause is one thing. And again, it's sort of going to this idea of like, what do I know? What can I do with that knowledge? And how can I use that knowledge to create a better life, a better outcome, a better society? I I think that's what we're all really here to do. And I think that's what drives happiness and satisfaction and all kinds of things. But I also think it's how our brain, we're like literally hardwired to think like that. And, you know, this is why we say like, should juveniles have the same punishments as adults? Because they don't have their, they're not able to make those judgments and impulse control and all these things come later. That's really important to understand in terms of where we are in the world where everything is reactionary and we're not really using judgment. 
And so much of panic and anxiety, which, you know, everybody seems to be suffering with post-COVID, that's like your irrational brain firing off on things that are not really dangerous to you at all. But for some reason, you're putting too much emphasis on that back part of your brain and you're not allowing all of these things and life experiences and your ability to express yourself and take in language and information and process it to filter through and, and make a call about whether you should be scared or not. I think that's all playing into the the sort of crisis of modern day life and how, um, you know, human autonomy is really on the table for the grabbing with this sort of attention kidnapping stuff. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, we, I think, have collectively talked for almost five hours. <laughs> and it's been amazing. I honestly could talk. And there's a thousand things as you were talking. I'm like, oh, we should talk about this. We should talk about this. But we literally, you know, we, we've done two episodes already. So that will be for another time. But for people listening, firstly, where can they find the Broken Science Initiative online? So brokenscience.org is the website. And we have a lot of really cool original content coming out, which will be delivered both in newsletter and it will be you know, displayed on the homepage. But the forum that we've created, we have a, um, Mia and Ethan are our web gurus and they are amazing at what they do. And I can kind of like come up with an idea for something and they're able to actually develop it and build it, which is really awesome. So the forum we have is really robust in its ability to like, you can follow people that are writing that you're interested in. You can follow friends of yours to see what they've been reading. It'll The more people we get on there, the more it'll become hopefully a real community online for this kind of interest group. Um, and then we did fun things like if you went to the event in Arizona, you'll get a badge from that event next to your name. So you'll start to see meet people in real life that you'll be able to connect with online or know that you've been at the same place because I think human interaction in person is really still the most important way for us to be you know, sort of exchanging ideas. Um, and then we'll have this school curriculum that we're working on. So Greg and um, William Briggs, who's one of our sort of fellows for this project, will be speaking at Hillsdale College on April 12th. So I don't know when you're running this, but um, that's open to the public and you can go on and register. I think it's hillsdale.edu maybe with backslash of broken science is how you register for that event. And the college is hosting us. So we don't have a whole lot to do with the event itself, but um, they're both speaking and then there's a dinner and that's in Michigan. And then we're going to have other events that are going to be great. I think we just did this big one and we're, I'm certainly exhausted from having being the only full-time employee. We have a lot of great part-time people who helped out a lot, but it was a lot to pull off. And I think we'll probably do one of those a year. Um, and then we're, we're going to do smaller events around the country. So we have an event page on the website too, where people can go and they can watch all of the lectures from the private events we've done. And I think probably today or tomorrow, the big Arizona event, all those will be up. We have every, we get all the speakers slides. So you have all the resources that you want to sort of look through and use however you want. Um, and then if you are on Instagram, the Broken Science Initiative is just at Broken Science Initiative. And then the CrossFit book one is at the CrossFit book. Um, and so those are great places to kind of follow along. Now, with the CrossFit book, do you have an anticipated date yet? I do not. Uh, <laughs> I have to finish writing it. And I think, you know, a, the book is really written in my mind in the way that it's really Greg's story. And obviously, that's a CrossFit's story up until the sale. The things that we need to figure out about are 
why was the NSCA suit settled under terms of strict confidentiality? Um, which is rearing its head again, because I think, you know, the military contracts are a big deal and the NSCA still owns all of those, which is sort of mind blowing to me because even though the case was settled and, you know, no one's allowed to talk about the settlement, all of the documents that lead up to it are public. And a federal judge calls it the biggest case of scientific misconduct and fraud she's ever seen in her 25 years on the bench. You kind of think that should disqualify you from government contracts. It hasn't yet. I'd like to work on that, which I may be working on a little bit in the background. Um, But I also think, you know, what Greg and I are doing now with the Broken Science Initiative is such an organic and natural thing for him to be working on at this stage of his career and life that it needs to play out a little bit more before I can write about it. And he teases me that I'm like now part of the story, which I really don't want to be in the book. Um, but I think this ending part is, you know, it, it can't end with the sale of CrossFit. He's gone upstream and he's solving these problems in a much bigger way. And he hasn't left. He's not off fly fishing with his kids or, you know, he's, he's much deeper in it than he ever had been before. And that's an essential part of telling his story. So, I mean, I'm not in any rush. I like, you know, deliberately don't have a publisher. I'm going to self-publish it and I'm going to do it when I feel like the story is complete and I can, and tell it in a way that really is um, true to the, the, you know, sort of work and man that he is. Um, And it would be like, you know, cutting everybody off at the legs before we really get to the big punch which, you know, maybe both of us being assassinated. I have no idea. This broken science thing is going to be very combative and troubling for pharma and other, you know, sugar, everybody. So um, I should probably like organize my notes and share them with somebody. <laughs> Put copies in a safe. <laughs> right. But um, but yeah, I think, you know, hopefully in a year or two, the, we'll be at a place where that conclusion is enough along that people know what we're doing and that, you know, can follow that journey on their own, but we'll get how he got here in a way that I can tell properly. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last thing as far as um, online, where are the best places for people to follow and or reach out to you online? Well, so, I mean, I, those Instagram accounts, I have people who help me with them, but I'm really like, I respond to all the comments and I really have been, although it's, definitely taking up too much time. Um, I try to be thoughtful about a lot of people send messages, you know, to Greg that are very personal and I pass those on to him and I try to respond to everybody because I think, you know, he has had such a profound impact on so many individuals that I absolutely hate the idea of somebody sharing their story and not knowing that somebody read it or shared it with him. Um, I mean, my personal Instagram is news, not noise but I don't expect anybody to really be interested in pictures of my kids or anything. So it's the other two that will probably appeal to people more. Me going out and drinking, you know, I I don't know if you want, if you're into that kind of stuff, you can follow the personal page (laughs) do. Beautiful. Not drinking, not, no, I'm not condoning that, especially for young women who are ovulating. (laughs) Which circles fans to the beginning. Well, I want to say thank you so much. We have literally, I believe, chatted for five hours and genuinely I could I could speak to you for another five hours. I know that hopefully down the road we might be getting Greg on the show and obviously we'll we'll see what happens with that. But that aside, the the perspective that you've brought, 
not only with some of the things you're working on now, but your journey in journalism and, and all these other things that we've discussed have been invaluable, you know, especially even with, with the media side itself. Your kind of unraveling of that adds another layer to people's understanding of what they're actually watching in their screens now. So I just want to say thank you so, so much, not only for being so generous with your time, but being so generous with your perspective and your knowledge too and sharing it with everyone today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm not sure I'm as interesting as you make me out to seem, but thank you for saying all of that.